Okay. The Israeli-Palestine war, a better response. We all should be aware that um, the 10th of October, I think, no, 7th of October, was when Hamas attacked Israel. And it wasn't long after that that Israel retaliated and there's been this, this war that has been raging. But Christians don't always know how to respond well because Israel is involved. And the moment Israel is involved, Christians get confused as to what they should think and feel and do. So I want to look at a, at a gospel-hearted response to this. It's going to take two weeks. So I'm starting today. We're going to ease into it today. And then next week, it'll get a little bit more uncomfortable as we look at ideologies and theologies that tend to influence our perspectives and therefore our actions and our attitudes towards such events. But I want to thank Alexander Fenter, our scholarly friend and colleague, for he put out a 12-page paper recently that I so enjoyed reading and some of the thoughts that I am teaching into over the next two weeks, I want to give him credit for, for, for doing a lot of research on it. But as Christians, Scripture, where's that Bible here? As Christians, Scripture is vital in informing us of the way of God on planet earth because it's a fallen world it's a broken world it's a confused world and scripture amazingly has stood the test of time and in the scriptures we have the revelation of the lord jesus christ for us the way he lived the way he he did life and without that we're in trouble Secondly, the scriptures are made up of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And, not, and as I've preached before in a whole series, and I mention it often, we don't always read the scriptures well. Yeah. And we don't, therefore, because we don't read them well, we don't always understand them well, and we take out verses from wherever we like, and we quote them because we think that's what God's Word says. But it doesn't. We've just taken a scripture and quoted it. And so when it comes to the Old Testament, which is made up of three distinct sections, there is the Torah or the instruction or the commands or the law. There is the prophets. That's from the minor prophets like Obadiah and others to the major prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. And then there are the writings. That's all the rest, the poetry, the Psalms, the Song of Songs, the history books, the judges, the kings, all the writings. Those are the three sections. But I want to say the following. Whenever we are reading as Christians the Old Testament, we ought to always interpret it through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word of God made flesh. And we've got to start realizing that's how we do it. So when Jesus came, he starts off, and the first recorded teaching that we have from him is what we call, or what is known as the Sermon on the Mount, or the Sermon on the Mountain side. 
because it's the most profound set of teaching that when you look at it, it's like, wow, he really believes that. And I want us to realize that it took his hearers completely by surprise when he was teaching them this. It was like, what did you say? You really believe that? And we're going to read some of that scripture. Now, I'm not going to teach into that this morning. We're going to read through it because this, is going to, this should profoundly transform the way we as Christians live life and do life. Because he came, and you, as you'll see, as we read, he came to fulfill the Torah. He came to fulfill the righteous way of living of God and to show us what that looks like. When he was teaching, by the way, and it's good that we remember this, the Roman government didn't quite give a hoot about what Jesus was going on about. Because they, they just carried on. You know, when they started to take notice of it was when Jesus died and his, these followers of Christ, these Christians, this church started to rise up and grow and grow and they started to say, Kyrios Christos, Jesus Christ is Lord. When the, when the Roman government heard that, now they started to think, well, if they're saying that Jesus is Lord, it means they're saying that Caesar's not Lord, and now we've got a problem. And that's when Nero and all the others started to persecute the church viciously because now they were threatened. But when Jesus was teaching, they just thought, ah, carry on, carry on, Rabbi, carry on. But amongst his hearers, it radically transformed who they were and it became the church, as we know. So let's have a look at what Jesus taught. So this is what leads into it. This is um, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23 to 25. This is the leading into the Sermon on the Mount. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Say the gospel of the kingdom. A lot of Christians think, is Jesus' main message the gospel or the kingdom? Uh Uh-uh. It's the good news of the kingdom of God come to earth in Jesus. It's the gospel of the kingdom. It's the good news of the rule and reign of God on planet earth in the heart of man that changes everything. So he proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom and he demonstrated it, this new way of living, this new rule and reign of God by healing every disease and every affliction among the people. There was nothing too hard for him. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those affected with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. You can imagine because he did this, great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, that's the ten major cities around and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So you can imagine wherever Jesus went, there were hordes of people coming because this guy is doing stuff that no one's ever seen before. And he's healing. He healed my mom-in-law. He healed my son. He healed my daughter. He healed my gran. He healed my best friend. So we want to keep coming. And they kept on coming and pressing in. So now we go to verse 1 of chapter 5. Straight away the next verse says this. Seeing the crowds, so here's Jesus, looks and he just sees hundreds upon hundreds of people are coming. He says, hey, let's go up there on the mountainside where they can't come. Let's go and have a break. 
and he calls to himself his disciples. So the ones who follow him up to hear what we're going to hear as the Sermon on the Mount are not the Pharisees. They're not the legal zealots. They're not just the masses who want to get healed. They are the ones who are interested in Jesus. They are the ones who want to come close and learn more. They are the followers, the disciples. So they go up on the side of the mountain and Jesus begins to teach them. Uh, let me go back one before we go there, if I can. So, some Christians believe that what Jesus was doing here was, was initiating this incredibly high level of living that was going to show us that you are so pathetic and put this, this sense of complete failure upon us because we can never live up to it and we better somehow try and live up to it and try and live this way that he wants us to live, otherwise we're going to fail. There are another group of Christians who believe that this portion of teaching of Scripture does not pertain to us as followers of Christ because it was Jesus was speaking into the Jewish context and he was speaking to the religious leaders of the day. I have a I see error in both of those because he wasn't speaking to the religious leaders, he was speaking to his disciples. He wasn't wasting his breath. He was unpacking the revelation of the new righteous way of God being lived out on planet earth that all of us could learn from. He wasn't putting on us anything. He was revealing to us something. He wasn't putting on us anything. He was revealing to us something that was completely new and different. It was going to be, and I, and I want you to hear this word righteousness. This word righteousness is a big deal to God. Righteousness and justice are words that are very, very similar. In the Hebrew and in the New Testament, where it was more Greek, they're very, very similar words, righteousness and justice. And don't think of it as a goody two-shoes. Righteousness doesn't mean a goody two-shoes. Righteousness means the most right and just and fair way to treat one another, to treat yourself, and to treat God. Yeah. The most right and true and just way. So in other words, when I'm acting righteously towards you, I'm not acting more holy than you or better than you. I am treating you right. When I'm in righteousness with God and He's right, I am treating Him right and He's treating me right. And sometimes you're going to do that with yourself. You've got to treat yourself right. So that's what this is all about. So let's have a look now. <clears throat> he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Not the arrogant, not the wealthy, not the rich, the poor. So in other words, you disciples, you poor fishermen and whoever you are, you're welcome. This is yours. It's for you. Blessed are those who mourn, not those who always have everything working out right for them. If you mourn sometimes, if you're sad, if you've gone through a hard time, this is for you. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's a beautiful scripture. Blessed are the meek, the gentle, the humble, not the bullies, not the strong ones, the gentle 
and the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not your righteousness, not righteousness according to the religious leaders or to yourself, but the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, who want to understand it more, they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful. Say merciful. merciful. Blessed are those who show mercy instead of take revenge. Blessed are those who forgive instead of paying back. Blessed are the merciful. That's my righteousness, he's saying. That's my right way to treat each other. Blessed are the pure in heart. What does that mean? Pure in motive when you interact with somebody. Pure. Not twisted. Not for self-gain. Pure. Blessed are the peacemakers. Say peacemakers. 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 In other words, you're bent. The heart of Christ, the righteousness of God, is to be at peace with all men. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God, daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. You see, this word righteousness is going to be everywhere in the teachings of Jesus. It's about how to treat each other right, how to treat God right. Blessed are those, um, sorry, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Don't expect people to applaud you, he goes on to say. Don't expect to be a hero. You will face hardship because of my righteousness. Then, let's have a look at a few verses here. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I have come to completely fulfill, bring to maturity and completion, the righteous living that God has always wanted you to know, I will do it. I will fulfill it. I have come to fulfill it. I will, I will live it out. You'll see it. And you can learn from me. And I'll teach into this at another stage, all of these verses. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. So now what he does is he says, by the way, let me, let me now reveal to you the new righteousness. The, the, the new right way. He says, you have heard the old way said, do not murder. Is that the first one? Yeah. yeah. You shall not murder. But I, as the revelation of the new righteousness, say to you, those who are angry. Wow. He brings anger into the situation to equate it with murder. Because it's about treating each other right. When you have anger in your heart, the love of God doesn't flow. When you're angry with somebody or a situation or a group of people or a race group or a government or a nation, the love of God doesn't flow. So you, you think you're fine because you're not murdering each other. I'm saying if you're angry. Next one. You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Remember, we're talking about the Israeli-Palestine war. This is where we're going with this. You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What's that? If you take this, I'm going to take it back. If you take my eye, I'm going to take your eye. If you take my cow, I'm going to take your cow. If you take my wife, I'm going to take your wife. 
You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. Wow. How's that? So if a guy comes and takes your car, don't take revenge. You can stand up to him and say, hey, give me my car back. And if he says, no, I'm taking your car and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something if you don't, Jesus says, look after your heart. Be sons and daughters of the new kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Keep your heart free from revenge. Keep your heart free because revenge will eat you up and bring violence and pain to one another. And I'm about righteousness, being right and doing right by one another. So, no revenge. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. <laughs> I say to you, love your enemies and pray for them. I don't know a human being who doesn't have enemies. There's somebody who doesn't like you. Be okay with it. There's somebody who finds you irritating. There's somebody who thinks you've done something that is unforgivable. Sometimes you have done something and you've apologized as much as you can and there's nothing more you can do. But God says, have no room for hatred whatsoever with anybody. Because in my kingdom, love conquers all things. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And he goes on to say this. Chapter 6. Do not be like them. This is when they're praying. Do not be like them. For your He's talking about the religious people. For when they pray, he says, rather pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Different is your name. Praiseworthy is your name. Your kingdom come. Your kingdom of righteousness come. And your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Christians, when you consider the war, this is the prayer. Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That will was perfectly demonstrated in Jesus. Matthew 7, 12. So whatever you wish others to do to you, do also to them. Because that fulfills the law and the prophets. Whatever you want others to do to you, do to them. So summarizing the kingdom of God teachings in Jesus. I'll come back to that next week. <clears throat> the way of the kingdom of the heavens is love, grace, and peace. It's mercy, it's not anger and retribution. It's loving enemies and it's non-violence. It's Jesus. Non-violence. Paul says, don't take revenge. This is in one of his letters in the New Testament. But leave room for God's wrath. Leave room for God's judgment. Vengeance is mine, says God. Leave it up to God. He will deal justly with all who have done evil. Leave it to Him. 
Don't take it out yourself. By the way, Jesus confirmed his nonviolent approach. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to arrest him and all the soldiers came with clubs and swords and, and Simon Peter grabbed his sword and he, and he cut off the one guy's ear. And Jesus says, Simon, Simon, put your sword away. For those who draw the sword, for those who live by the sword, will die by the sword. Violence begets violence. Anger begets anger. Love overcomes all things. And this was the new way of righteousness that God wanted his people to continue carrying on with his legacy as I preached at Christmas time. Carry on with Jesus' legacy. It's the greatest gift you can give your Father in heaven to continue the, the legacy of Jesus. So that was Matthew 26 I've just referenced. <clears throat> now, some people amongst us might say, well, what about this scripture? So, so can any of you think of a scripture that's contrary to what I've been saying in the New Testament? Okay, well, then I'll tell you. Because it's important that we think, what about this scripture? So here we go. Listen to this. Matthew 10, 34 to 36. Jesus speaking, he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Huh? You've just contradicted everything else, Jesus, that you've said. For I have come, he goes on to say, to set a man against his, or I have come, to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those in their own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Okay, so how do you understand that scripture? When you read the context of it, remember I said Christians don't always read this, the scripture as well. When you read the, the context of that, what did Jesus speak that into? He was talking about, I'm sending you out. Go and preach the gospel out there. Get brave, be bold, and go. And don't let anybody stop you. If your mom says, oh my boy, please don't go. I need you at home to look after me. Who's going to make me tea? You say, Mom, Jesus has called me. I am going. And your mother's going to go, are you choosing him over me? He, his calling will bring division in a household. If you're going after him and they don't want you to go. If you want to give a part of your inheritance away to the gospel of the kingdom and your dad hears you're giving 10,000 rand to that church, it will cause division. It's around the, me, the, 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 the mandate and the mission that there will be division. And he says, if any of you love your father or your mother more than me that you don't go, you're not worthy of me. So that's, that's the peace. It's, he's not saying, I'm bringing violence and I want you to pull out your swords. He says, in a home, there'll be a setting against one and the other when the one wants to do the gospel work and the other one says no. That's all it is. So now, by the way, just, just so you know, what would I do if somebody broke into my home and attacked my wife and my children? Help yourself. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. No, I won't do that. I hope and I pray with all my heart that I will stand up in faith and say in the name of Jesus and take authority over the dark works. I really hope and pray I'll do that. I believe I would. But if all else fails, I'm in. I'm going to protect. <laughs> but I don't, I don't 
I personally choose no guns. I don't like guns. I've got no time for that. But that's up to you. As long as your motivation is pure. Is it fear-based or love-based? Just work it out. So firstly, those who understand the gospel of King Jesus cannot support the brutality of violent war that kills innocent people. There was a time when war was rough and it happened. But since Jesus has come and the inauguration of the kingdom way and the new way, violence is not the heart of God. We condemn. All right, when I say we, I as a Christian, let me speak for myself. I as a Christian, looking at this horrific war that's going on, I condemn Hamas for the barbarous massacre of over 1,400 Israelis. 1,400. They took 240 hostages, ripped them from their families, took them away to, to underground tunnels where they couldn't be found. That included women and children. Women and children taken away. We can list all the atrocities to the degree that they've been verified as factual. And no matter however they try and justify what they did, all I know is Jesus wept for one man who died. He wept for one. When he sees such, I can imagine the weeping of Jesus and what are we doing to each other. But also, at the same time, friends, I, I do not, I, I condemn Israel's response. Me. I think, how can you respond like that? So let's think about what they did. They displaced 1.9 million people. They said, you better move because we're going to blow up this whole area. Imagine someone comes to you and says, move. Where do you go? What do I take? No, no, move. Just go, go. We're coming in. We're going to blow it all up. Where? Why? I'm not Hamas. They displaced 1.9 million. They killed over 21,000 people. 7,000 people still missing under rubble. 56,000 people injured. And that was all at the end of December. Those kind of details. The justification of the Israeli Defense Force, the IDF, they will try and justify why they went in and did this. They will say, in our right to exterminate Hamas because of what Hamas did, we warned everybody to leave. Oh, we gave them ample warning. Move. And then they'll say things like, well, it's, it's, sadly, it's just unfortunate collateral damage that other human people had to die because we had to go after the enemy who killed all these people of us. Think of all the children, the babies who died in this. For the Palestinians who live in Gaza, it was a collective punishment muted out upon people who had no choice in the matter. Jesus wept for one, just one. 
Personally, I think it's barbaric, and this is what I, I hear happened. It's barbaric to use a child as a human shield. But it's equally barbaric to bomb a child in order to kill a killer. To seek God's rule. Whoa, don't I have that? There we go. To seek first God's rule of righteousness is to side with truth and justice in any and every situation and to intervene to make peace, to reconcile, to heal, and to restore. That's the way of Jesus. That's the way of the kingdom. Every time. Not sometimes, every time. Whenever I hear people say, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, pray for Israel. That's from a psalm, by the way. And you ought to go and read that psalm. Um, it is a, a, a wonderful psalm, but, but, I, but I urge you, read the whole psalm. Read the whole context in which the psalm is highlighted so that you understand why David says pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Because if you're going to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, please also pray for Palestine. Please pray for everybody, for God so loved the entire world. God didn't just love the, the Jews. He loved the entire world, and that's why Jesus came. Um, that's Psalm 122, for those of you who want to go and read that, and I encourage you, all go and read it and work out why it says that. Now, our response, and I'll close with this. Just three things, and then next week we're going to get into the ideologies and the theologies from the Scriptures and from politics a little bit as to why certain Christians think they should take sides. But we'll unpack that next week. In our response, first of all, our response should always be one of compassion. Compassion. Passion is the word of, of excited or feeling. It's, it's passion. It's, there's energy in it. Compassion is when you have a sense of feeling towards somebody else's situation. If we don't have compassion, it's an indication that possibly we have been desensitized to the plot of human suffering on the planet. The more you see human suffering, the less compassion you have. It's possible that you get so used to seeing people going through rubbish bins in South Africa on the streets on a Thursday or a Wednesday whenever they come to collect your rubbish. Picking out cans, finding little bottles. You go overseas, you don't see it much. You come back, wow, gosh, it's, a, it's an assault. But the moment we lose compassion, we become desensitized to human suffering. So do we feel a sense of compassion for the loss of life? in the Middle East. Also Russia, Ukraine, where, just, just wherever we go, but we're focusing on this one. You know, when Jesus heard Lazarus had died, what did he know? He knew that this man was going to rise again from the dead. Didn't he? He prophesied it. He said, don't worry, he's, he's, he's just sleeping. I'll raise him up. But when he gets there, he doesn't go, stop crying everybody man just watch me in a moment I'm going to raise him from the dead 
He gets there and he looks at the people suffering and he cries with them. That's what God feels when people are suffering. Compassion. Paul says in his teachings, mourn with those who mourn. Mourn with those who mourn. In this world, there will be trouble. In this world, there will be mourning. Only when he recreates all things will there be no more mourning. Until then, mourn with those who mourn. New Testament. And how do I, how do I catch compassion? The more time I spend praying, talking with God, feeling God's heart, sensing God's heart, the more compassion rises up. Because it's in prayer that I catch the heart of God. It's in prayer. And not just, oh God, bless Israel. Oh God, bless Palestine. God, help the people. God, stop the war on Matmadeh. Catch the heart of God. That's what prayer is. Prayer is coming in line with the will of God and the ways of God and catching the heart of God. Because when you catch the heart of God, you get the perspective of God and you get the solutions of God. Secondly, silence is not an option. So the way we kind of describe this one is, well, I don't know enough to make a valuable... I mean, who knows the intricacies and details of the Middle Eastern politics? I don't know enough. So what can I say? Uh, also, there's, there's so much information going on, and I don't know, I don't know. Another thing we do is this, we go, well, sure. They, that's far away from me, so I hope they're okay, but I'm, I'm all right. That's silence. We're going to catch the heart of God for righteousness on planet Earth. We are called to bring the new kingdom, the kingdom of God, to planet Earth. And in this day with the World Wide Web, friends, we've got information and misinformation. We've got propaganda. We've got all kinds of stuff, but you and I can sift through it and have conversations and discussions and catch the heart of God for how He wants us to think of what's going on in the Middle East. And then lastly, resist the pressure to take sides except the side of God and the side of truth and the side of righteousness and the side of justice. Don't be bullied or forced into taking sides by your gran or your best friend. You and I go with Jesus and His kingdom come. That's the side that we take. And, bef and, and this is the part that's going to be important, is what leads us to take sides are our ideologies and our theologies that form and shape what we think. And that's what we're going to unpack next week. Um, and try and work out why, we, why certain Christians say certain things about why we should do this with regards to Israel. There is, uh, <clears throat> okay, let me bring this to a close, but there is an interesting account that takes place with Joshua. Just after Israel have gone through the wilderness and they come into the promised land, and um, they, the, the manna just stops, and now they're going to take all the produce from the land, and they're going to enjoy that. And um, suddenly there's a man standing in front of Joshua, a heavenly man with a drawn sword. And so Joshua goes, are you for us or, or are you for our enemies? And this, this man says, neither. I'm here on the side of God. 
I'm the commander of the armies of the Lord. I'm not for you and I'm not for them. I'm for God. And that's the attitude we've got to have. I'm not necessarily for you or for you in this particular situation. I'm talking about this situation. I'm not for you or for you. I'm on the side of God. What's God's perspective? What's God's truth in this situation? So, if we have an idea of what we think and believe, let's hold it loosely until we are shaped by God and His kingdom come and His righteousness before we go on and on and on and on down a road that we may not really be seeing the fruit of God's kingdom coming. Let's stand together.